3CR broadcasts on the sovereign land of the Woiwurrung and the Boonwurrung people of the Eastern Kulin Nation. We pay our respect to their elders, past, present and emerging. And we acknowledge that a, a treaty was never signed and that sovereignty was never ceded. CR Breakfast. Oh, Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am oh, to 8.30am. Yeah. Good morning, you're listening to Monday Breakfast. Good morning, nice to be here with you Patty and Claudia. <laughs> Hi, nice to be here too, we're all live and uh, three of us here, we're allowed three in the studio, so yeah. I think I finally adjusted to the 7am start, it was a bit rough for our first morning last week, yeah. <laughs> getting back into routine. And uh, you went you went away last week, Ella? Yeah, yeah, I made the most of our um, reduced restrictions and got out of town on the 9th of November straight away, um, so I went down to Dramana on the Mornington Peninsula. My first swim of the season in the ocean, got some sun. Um, yeah, it was good to get away, just that feeling of the fresh air, I think. We're saying you don't realise when you're in the city all the time until you leave that, um, yeah, you'd be missing it. <laughs> I'm so jealous. I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting out of the city. Was it very busy down there? No, actually, not as busy as I thought it would be. Um, we had, you yeah. got there before the weekend. <laughs> yeah, I think so. The water was still a little cool, so maybe that was keeping everyone away. <laughs> <laughs> and what's everyone got for this morning's show? Uh, at, at 8 o'clock, uh, we're going to speak to Cam from Yenar Passaran, which is the resident anti-fascist show on 3CR. And we're going to hear about uh, the right-wing response to the presidential election um, in the US. So really, really excited to speak to Cam. He's, he's always a good chat. That'll be great because uh, we had uh, an interview a couple of weeks ago with uh, a history professor from uh, the University of Texas and his specialty was fascism so he was talking about uh, exactly uh, that area, the right wing um, groups and what might or might not happen depending on the election outcome so yeah it would be really good to have a, a, an update on what is happening now that we yeah. uh, are there in time Yeah absolutely and yeah, I've got, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, I've got a conversation um, between Professor Eileen Morton Robinson and Professor Fiona Nicole. Um, so they spoke earlier this year at the Wheeler Centre, or remotely, but sponsored by the Wheeler Centre. Um, and they talk a lot about uh, the history of cultural appropriation in Australia um, and the ways in which feminist movements can clash with ideas of Indigenous sovereignty. Um, so that'll be a good chat to listen to. Yeah, what context of cultural appropriation are they focusing on or is it a general conversation? Um, a bit of both. Um, so they talk a bit about the history of um, artefacts and using Indigenous art um, in artefacts um, made by white people. <laughs> um, and they also talk a bit about uh, ecofeminism um, mm. and the ways in which they are using knowledge from an Indigenous women um, and the ways in which that relationship can be strained. Mm. So very Sounds really interesting. Forward. Well, first up this morning, um, I'll be talking to Dr. Elizabeth Shee. She is a law professor at uh, RMIT University and her area of specialty is employment law and discrimination law. 
So she's coming to talk to us uh, via the telephone, not coming in in person, uh, about gender equity and the uh, legal provisions of the Sex Discrimination Act, which um, have been uh, under review uh, by the Human Rights Commission and the United Nations Women Group, uh, and came into the spotlight last week with the Four Corners uh, episode that uh, focused on the Canberra bubble and the behaviour of male politicians, um, focusing on two in particular, one who denied the allegations made and the other who um, uh, apologised for his behaviours. But uh, there's been a lot of press coming out of that. Uh, not that we re- needed reminding that this was happening already no. in the workplace. <laughs> um, yeah, and there'll be some interesting statistics as well to share. Oh, that'll be good. Have you seen the documentary yet, Claudia? Yeah, I um, watched it on iView, and um, yeah, it was it was interesting. Um, but uh, it'll be interesting also in the context of what Dr. She has to say, because it, it very much did focus on these two individuals and. Uh, she's been involved in some uh, research about how the Act might be reformed and it, it suggests that that individualistic um, approach to looking at sexual harassment is quite narrow because it focuses just on the circumstances of a particular incident, which are obviously serious and important and need to be dealt with, but it sort of uh, shifts from the overall culture of the place and takes away the onus of the organisation actually to change that culture. Uh, So she's going to be looking at what sort of structural reforms um, might address the issue more successfully. Yeah, absolutely. Very full show coming up. I'm I'm excited to to hear it all. Um, I just wanted to bring up before we got into the content... uh, some good news from the weekend. Well, number one, we got to like 15 days of no cases or something, which mm-hmm. is so exciting. <laughs> and then um, on Sunday, uh, the Victorian government announced uh, $4.3 billion in funding for uh, public housing. Um, and that's an interview that we, uh, a subject that we should look into with an interview because, you know, it, it can be a, a murky area where is it public housing or is it social housing? You know, where, where, are, where are these houses going to be built? Who are they for? Um, but, you know, that's a really exciting thing. Yeah, absolutely. Very exciting. But, yeah, as you said, it'll be interesting to see um, the details and how it plays out. Um, I think the government might be looking for some good publicity around public housing after the lockdown earlier this year. Definitely. Um, either way, it's a good Big focus on jobs, <laughs> but uh, if they get it right, it will help uh, a lot of people who have been waiting. <laughs> yeah, and long overdue, I think, for the sounds. <laughs> well, let's start the show off with Better in Black by Thelma Plum. An old favourite.
the media in this country, we as Indigenous people know, have censored our right of telling the truth. And the truth is what this country is most fearful of, in particular Indigenous truths. Until history is told by the vanquished lens, which is our people telling our story our way, and have the right to be able to incorporate that into a system of learning, well, people are always going to be denied that truth by deceit and lies. When you look at the type of psychological warfare, spiritual warfare that Aboriginal people are caught in, it's not just in the sense of military when they talk about weapons of mass destruction, but you're right, it's in terms of the media and the industry of media as a warfare against our people, and so is religion, I believe, in the Western sense. They're, they're all weapons of mass destruction against our, our people. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Okay, so we're going to have our discussion on gender equality now, uh, which is obviously uh, a major issue uh, in Australian society Uh, and it's one that's entrenched in Australian law yet large numbers of women are still experiencing unequal treatment in the home and workplace. This morning we're going to be discussing one area of workplace inequality and that is sexual harassment. 72% of Australians have been sexually harassed in their lives, the majority of them women, And two in every five women, compared with one in four men, experienced sexual harassment in the workplace in the last five years. The statistics can be even higher for particular groups, such as young workers, LGBTQI workers, Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islanders, workers with disability or from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, migrant workers or workers holding temporary visas, and people in insecure or precarious working arrangements. Our guest this morning is an expert in employment law and discrimination. Dr Elizabeth Shee is a senior lecturer in law at RMIT University in Melbourne. She's here to talk about the laws that are supposed to protect women from unwanted behaviours, why they are failing and what changes are required to make them more effective. Her insight is even more welcome after an ABC Four Corners report last Monday turned the spotlight on the behaviour of some of Australia's senior politicians towards women in the parliamentary workplace. We have some lovely piped music coming through, but we'll uh, sort that out. Um, Dr Shea, do we have you on the line there? You might have to go to a song and come back to Dr Shea. So rough with hands so rough. 
That was Paper Hearts by Leah Flanagan and before that we heard Glitter in Their Eyes by Patty Patty Smith. Now hopefully we have Dr Elizabeth Shee on the line and she's going to be talking to us this morning about the Sex Discrimination Act. Good morning Dr Shee. Good morning Claudia. Lovely to have you with us and thank you for your time this morning. Thank you. Can you start off by explaining what sorts of behaviour constitute sexual harassment in Australia in terms of workplace behaviour? Yes. Uh, So the Sex Discrimination Act 1984 uh, defines sexual harassment as when a person sexually harasses another person if the person makes an unwelcome sexual advance or an unwelcome request for sexual favours to the person harassed or engages in other unwelcome conduct of sexual nature in relation to the person harassed. And also the legal test is in circumstances where a reasonable person having regard to all the circumstances would have anticipated the possibility that the person harassed would be offended, humiliated or intimidated. So that's the legal test um, under the Sex Discrimination Act. And what sorts of conduct have uh, been tested uh, and fall within that category? Yeah, so court cases have um, usually ruled things like, um, you know, repeated requests for dates, uh, you know, and, and having, like, especially when there's a power imbalance, okay, where the, let's say, the manager 
uses the you know the power that that person has over the employee or the more junior staff and uh, makes those advances and you know requests for dates and comments about you know how they look and comments about um, you know so yeah so things which are Unwelcome. But the, one of the problems with the legal test, and we point this out in our research, which has been published by the University of New South Wales Law Journal, which is a top-ranking law journal, is that the problem, the, the element of unwelcome, which I just explained, privileges the male perception of his conduct and as not unwelcome. Okay, so what, what it fails to really recognise and acknowledge, you know, um, intrinsically in that legal test is that Empirical evidence shows us that 43% of people who have made a complaint about sexual harassment report a negative consequences, not to the other person, not to the perpetrator, but to themselves. Okay, so generally what happens is that they, they make a complaint, you know, they tell their human resources or their managers or, you know, people potentially above the managers about the conduct and then say, and then what happens is that they are troubled as trouble sorry they are labeled as troublemakers they're ostracized victimized and ignored by colleagues or by you know by the business and they end up resigning or being made redundant so there's yeah that that explains why only 17 percent of people experiencing women experiencing um sexual harassment make any complaint and that includes complaints to their employers and we're not just talking about complaints you know to the human rights Commission or complaints to a court or external body, it's only 17% make any complaints. So a vast majority of women experiencing this type of treatment, this type of uh, experience at their workplace, are simply just remain choose to remain silent. They choose not to make any complaint because of the fear of retaliation and fear of negative consequences um, and to their career and to their job. We'll uh, come back to the cultural aspects of um, the problem a bit mm. later in the interview. Um, are you also, though, saying that the, the test of um, a gesture uh, being unwelcome sort of brings a, uh, some subjectivity to uh, the situation and that if uh, the, the person who feels they are wronged hasn't actually uh, made that clear to the other person involved, that that person might not... Um, in their mind, think that their behaviour was unwelcome? Yeah, so the legal test of unwelcome, um, sort of a bit, like, a bit like criminal, you know, in a criminal law where a rape trial, the victim potentially is under trial more than, like, more than the perpetrator because the, because the question, say, on the sort of the legal test is really, okay, as you just said, how, has she made it clear? Uh, what is her, how is she dressed? Um, what is her conduct? So, so the, the 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 emphasis or the the legal test really has has not really taken into account what I just mentioned before the empirical evidence. The empirical evidence is that 43% of people who make a complaint suffer negative consequences to themselves. So it it doesn't. We can't really blame victims. And and, and quite interestingly, research shows that during COVID-19, when women um, uh, more uh, more women are working from home. They, they are finding it easier to come forward with historical complaints of sexual harassment because they they don't have to work alongside 
with the perpetrators. Like they're working from home. So this year, 2020, there's been an increase of sexual harassment uh, complaints um, and, and, and those things historic, from historical events. And, and in the Four Corners program, which aired on Monday last week, uh, the complainants were talking about things which had happened, you know, um, not, not immediately complaining, but things which happened in the past. And, and one of the key reasons I've just explained to you with the empirical evidence is that if they complain immediately during their employment, during when they're actually still working alongside these perpetrators, 43% of people who have complained report a negative consequence to themselves, okay? So being labelled as troublemakers, ostracised, their careers are impacted negatively uh, by that complaint. And in fact, uh, the key complainant on the program had already suffered that negative consequence, so she was yeah. no longer employed um, in the government and, yeah. and uh, yeah, so she was in a different workplace when she came mm. out and spoke. Um, yeah, we'll come back to that um, Four Corners program as well. Uh, but mm-hmm. before we go any further, I just wanted to um, ask you to talk about uh, some of the discussion from your article addressing sexual harassment laws inadequacies in altering behaviour and preventing harm, a structural approach, because there you recommend uh, a shift away from the way organisations deal with cases uh, from exactly that individual um, circumstance being the focus of uh, the response and more to a preventative uh, approach where the systems are actually changed uh, to hopefully alleviate the harassment occurring in the first place. Can you explain the difference between these uh, two approaches, the individualistic approach and the systemic uh, structural approach? Yes, so in our research that we published at, at the University of New South Wales Law Journal, we make a distinction between the individual complaint approach, which is failing women, um, because if you think about the purpose of the Sex Discrimination Act, when we look at the object of what the act is trying to achieve, it is to eliminate, as far as possible, uh, discrimination involving sexual harassment in the workplace. And this objective or this purpose is nowhere near close to being achieved by this legislation. So uh, 39% of women surveyed by the Australian Human Rights Commission in 2018 report that they have experienced sexual harassment in the last five years in their workplaces. So, yeah, so the purpose of, of the legislation is not achieved by individual approach where the law places a heavy burden on that individual victim, if you like, to go through the legal steps and, you know, take legal action against the perpetrator. And, and the law perceives that as uh, a rogue player, if you like, or an individual's problem. However, what we recommend is imposing a preventative uh, positive duty on the employer, and that includes duty to prevent sexual harassment in their workplace, and that also has subsidiary duties. So... In order for that duty to be successfully enforced, we recommend having laws that incentivise compliance staff, such as human resources staff. Okay, Human resources staff should really view themselves as a profession so that they should be uh, more aligned with the professional concept of human resources rather than thinking of themselves as just 
you know, completely aligned with the employer. So human resources should have more of an independent role where they uh, where, where they recommend to their employers, you know, strategies and, you know, policies and so on to to train and educate and make sure that the employees all understand how they can, you know, achieve this culture of no sexual harassment. So that, that object of eliminating sexual harassment at the workplace needs to come from that positive duty and then having proper incentives where compliance staff can also help the managers, the, the management to achieve that goal. Okay, so, yeah, when we look at it as a systemic problem, um, it no longer places that really heavy burden on individuals to bring, bring forward complaints and go through legal steps and so on. It places more burden on the employer. So I think we, what we argue in this, in this article is that this type of approach will be much more effective because, it, yeah, like I said, it doesn't, it doesn't just treat the problem as an individual problem, but it treats it as a systemic problem. And the United Nations uh, Women Entity, which is charged with responsibility for addressing gender inequality globally, um, they've also uh, asserted that leadership is one of the foundations for a permanent and meaningful organisational change to end sexual harassment. Uh, And you, in your article, have um, referred to Sandra Fredman, who is an esteemed professor of uh, anti-discrimination law uh, in Britain and she also um, talks about equity goals being best uh, served by those who are in a position to prevent the wrongdoing. How does that then fit with some of the uh, examples of wrongdoing which are actually coming from the people at the top? Um, The recent Four Corners program presented two Australian ministers in a negative light when it came to workplace behaviour, one of whom uh, denied the allegation and the other who uh, accepted and apologised for his behaviour. And then earlier this year we had the former Chief Justice of the High Court of Australia, the subject of allegations um, of sexual misconduct. Prime Minister Scott Morrison uh, emphasised the seriousness of the allegations made uh, on the Four Corners program, but emphasised that they were historical um, uh, cases and didn't uh, take the opportunity to, um, to, to see it as a situation where he could change the culture in Canberra. So my question is... Um, is systemic cultural change possible without a change of attitudes and behaviours at the top? And how can changes to the written law be effective while individuals who are the makers of the law are seen, in some cases, to be flouting it or failing to tackle the bigger cultural problems of fear and bad behaviour within their own organisations? Mm. Yes, so, yes, the Four Corners program was very insightful in revealing these misconduct uh, from these two people you've mentioned. Uh, But there are some exemplars of great leadership. Uh, Malcolm Turnbull in 2018 uh, made a change to the statement of ministerial standards. He said quite clearly that ministers must not have sexual relations with their staff. And that was, you know, that that was then um, formally inserted into the statement of ministerial standards. So 
there was a change in 2018, and that was great leadership from Malcolm Turnbull, the then Prime Minister at that time. So, yeah, there are some definitely positive examples as well of leaders taking a strong stance on this issue. Uh, yes, so I, I think there are negative, example, negative examples. There are also positive, positive examples. But what we're rec recommending our research is having more legal incentives for, you know, employers to, ha to comply with a positive duty. And, yeah, so, 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 so the legal change will have an impact. The other thing that would have an in impact, and we argue this in other pieces of research, is other bodies such as uh, other institutions such as trade unions. So, for example, in 2019, the National Union of Workers, which is now the United Workers Union, uh, successfully negotiated a sexual harassment and gendered violence clause into the enterprise agreement of their members who work at Chemist Warehouse. So that's an example where they actually, the union actually organised uh, industrial action on this issue, plus also the um, underpayment issues and you know fair pay and so on. But they did was successful, as far as I'm aware, the first time was successfully inserted into an enterprise agreement. So, yeah, so there are definitely things happening. There are definitely things that's being done. Uh, so I think we should really also look at the positive examples of, of momentum for change. Yes, well, we obviously want to see positive change, um, but I find it concerning that um, even with uh, former Prime Minister um, Malcolm Turnbull's uh, ban on sexual relations between um, employees, that, um, that he also seems to dilute the effect of that in terms of uh, changing the culture of the workplace because he then went on to talk about how uh, behaviours like that were, could potentially compromise a minister's um, position and that would not be very good for the security of the country and he suggested there were spies in Canberra that then could take advantage of that. That seems to me to dilute the message because it really is talking about protecting that minister's reputation as well as the reputation of the government and the security interests of the country, which are obviously all important but they're sort of workplace outcomes rather than the core issue, which is actually that it's wrong to be disrespectful to another person. So, yeah, while I uh, you know, agree that uh, there are some positives in the message, um, I think it's, yeah, it could go a lot further and perhaps be more singular if it just stuck with the core issue um, rather than... Uh, talking about the peripheral um, aspects of it and sort of shifting the uh, accountability and the, 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 the question of harm away from the individual that's wronged and uh, to the, whether it's the government or the, the broader national interest. We could talk about this subject for a, a lot longer, but I know that you uh, have some responsibilities this morning um, and maybe we can ask you to come back and, and talk a bit more about accountability because uh, it's great to have uh, provisions and duties but uh, it's important uh, to have that mechanism there that they can be enforced and monitored. Um, but thank you so much for talking to us this morning. Great. Thank you very much, Claudia. Thank you. Have a good morning.
Thank you. That was Dr. Elizabeth Shee from RMIT University talking to us about the Sex Discrimination Act and uh, some of the uh, proposals that are being made for uh, reform of that Act. And you can find uh, her article addressing sexual harassment laws inadequacies in altering behaviour and preventing harm, a structural approach in the New South Wales Law Journal 2020 at page 155. And we will put uh, details of that up on our website. Now I'd like to listen to a conversation between Professor Eileen Morton-Robinson and Professor Fiona Nicole. Eileen is a Gurnapal woman of the Kwandamuka people in Morton, Morton Bay, sorry, up in Queensland, and is a Professor of Indigenous Research at RMIT University. She is also the author of Talking Up to the White Woman, Indigenous Women and Feminism, a groundbreaking book which analyses the whiteness of Australian feminism and its effect on Indigenous women. Professor Nicole, Fiona Nicole sorry, is a founding member of the Australian Critical Race and Whiteness Studies Association. She's researched and written extensively on race and whiteness, much of which has been under the mentorship of Eileen. So the two women spoke at the first of a series of events held online earlier this year by the Wheeler Centre called Broadly Speaking, which looks at fem- feminism and gender. So this year was the 20th anniversary of Aileen's book, Talking Up to the White Woman. So this is the basis of their conversation. Um, They also discuss the history of cultural appropriation in Australia, uh, the ways in which feminist movements clash with ideas of Indigenous sovereignty, and the relationship between eco-feminism and Indigenous women's knowledge. So Fiona starts by asking Aileen about some of her more recent work. I've been thinking about your more recent contributions to cultural studies and um, in particular something I've been thinking about is the distinction between what is often called identity politics by conservative thinkers and alt-right activists and um, the politics of culture, uh, which is where we study um, how power works through social institutions and discourses and practices. I know you've been working on Aboriginalia and I wondered if you would 
um, just talk a little about what Aboriginalia is and how you understand its cultural and ideological significance as an expert on uh, whiteness and gender. Okay, well, Aboriginalia is kind of um, material that was produced by um, white men and women from really the turn of the century until the 1970s. A lot of it is on ceramics. So utilising Aboriginal motifs and um, uh, images, like appropriating and, and creating representations. And it was seen as a way of branding Australia. This is the iconic or the uniqueness of Australia uh, was to represent supposedly Aboriginal art or, and people on, you know, objects. And I, you know, really have been trying to think through that and to understand the idea of representation, not just as re, a representation, but representation in terms of how the the representation in t itself brings into being an epistemological possession. So when you actually portray or draw Aboriginal people on plates, you're bringing into being an image that's supposed to reflect something. But in that very process, you're creating this epistemological possession, right? So, it's, so ownership is very much a part of the construction, the representation. So even though it's a, a representation in that it isn't something that reflects reality, um, it is actually something that is also taken into possession in bringing it into being, yeah? So I'm trying to think about that in terms of the way in which it is a particular kind of white possessive aesthetic at work and how that white possessive aesthetic utilises and operationalises the Aboriginal body and symbols to um, say that this is what's unique around Australia, but at the same time totally erases Indigenous sovereignty and the history of colonisation in this country in the very uh, production of the epistemological possession. Yep. So I'm looking at how these things, which are collected by Aboriginal people as well, I might say, and, as, and you know, non-Aboriginal people, they were mainly produced by immigrants, uh, you know, particularly after the First War, and um, they are they are interesting objects that have a social life that were meant to create, you know. A production, particular production of national identity that at the same time is erased in terms of the real bodies, the real people. So this stuff is happening while we're on reserves, we're on missions, you know, children are being stolen, 
um, taken away. Um, legislation is becoming far more uh, containing. The surveillance becomes heightened. So this is what they're actually redoing to real Aboriginal people. At the same time as they're drawing them and they're utilising um, our art uh, on on these um, these objects, um, and I find that kind of um, contradiction just permeates very much the way in which Australia sees itself. So on the one hand, we can paint a Qantas plane and have Aboriginal, you know, stylistic iconography, but we can incarcerate Aboriginal people and children. We can put 10-year-olds in jail. We can refuse your sovereignty. We can basically um, continue to perpetrate your poor health through lack of resources. We cannot basically allow you to become a part of the economy. Instead, we structure through administrative and legal discourse, you're reliant on the state. So the people don't understand that through administrative and legal um, or legislative uh, works, Aboriginal people are incorporated into the state in particular ways that don't enable our disassociation and separation from the state. Um, in, instead, we, in a lot of cases, mm. Mm. Uh, in terms of the welfare dollar, are the things that prop up economies. If you were to take out, out all of the welfare dollar out of Alice Springs, that economy would fall over tomorrow, right? Mm. So, you know, welfare has always been a means of actually injecting money into the economy. Can we please think about this in terms mm. of mm. job seeker? Can we think about this in the way in which the state is actually responding to the virus? Mm -hmm. And that is what... They're the logics that it utilises with Aboriginal people. Thank you. It's like a, a um, aesthetics of containment. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's... Um, yeah, I've... I've this. Folks, um, check out this work. It's, it's, it's really great. Um, uh, at this particular time that many are calling the Anthropocene, there have been some renewed calls to reconsider foundational arguments of eco-feminism. Mm -hmm. I just wanted um, to hear from you about how well you think that eco-feminism um, has taken on board Indigenous women's knowledge as it relates mm -hmm. to catastrophic climate change and how you see the, I guess, like the question with Foucault, some of the, the um, possibilities but also some of the limitations of that um, at just w where we find ourselves. I think that eco-feminists on, on the ground um, are trying to work with Indigenous communities to... Uh, take care of land and to put in place more sustainable um, 
you know, efforts in terms of food production, etc. But the logics of eco-feminism are still very much in the sense of a contractual relationship. And what I mean by that, when it's the, the earth, they're not, it's not about being seen as being or understanding yourself as being in and of the earth. It's still a sense in which the human is contracting to utilise in some way the earth. And I think that there is, there, that's a fundamental difference in the way in which Indigenous people understand themselves and their relationship to being in and of the earth. So when we talk about sovereignty, it is not through the logics of basically that being conferred from a god that gave it to a king that then operationalised it in terms of democracy, right? So that ontological roots of the Westphalian notion of sovereignty, which also determines the relationships with the earth, is different to the way in which Indigenous peoples configured their sovereignty that is being in relations with um, non-humans, that's plants, that's all living things, and trying trying to uh, be a good relative, like being in good relations um, is... is the way in which we understand ourselves as not being worth any more or any less than every other living thing. So your your being is really determined by the relations that you're in with everything. Um, and capitalism, you know, precludes that uh, to some degree. And some of us still you know, understand and were basic and were... Like my... It's, it's a hard thing to... I try to uh, talk about how... What it is like to feel that you're walking on something living. You know, if you can imagine that. And I grew up with that, that we are... Working, walking on something living. So you take care in basically how you treat that living thing that you're actually a part of and sustained by, but you're also walking on it. So that sense of respect, even to think about where you put your feet. Like, how, how many people do you think get up out of bed every morning and think the heaviness of what capitalism has produced for the planet? And, you know, you might think I'm mad, but a lot of the the, um, the volcanists uh, or whatever, I probably haven't got the correct term, who monitor volcanoes basically said that first big lockdown, the earth, was quiet and our imprinted, like the, the, our noise and our vibration, when it went, it was like the planet 
was breathing, the animals were coming out, you know, plants were responding in particular ways. So what I'm saying is not some kind of, um, you know, craziness. It's actually seeking to conceptualise the planet and our relations with it in a different way. We have to think differently. We cannot mm. continue, mm. And, mm. you know, to think the way that we do. And it's, um, you know, understanding first and foremost that we are nothing without. It is the earth that sustains us and it's the power of the earth that can also destroy us. So that Foucauldian notion, which is still human-centred power. Like, it's all human-centred power. All Western theory is human-centred mm. power, right? Mm. Um, mm. That has to be changed. Mm. Mm. You know, we can't continue to think that humans have the power. You're listening to the Monday Breakfast Show on 3CR, and we just heard from distinguished professor Eileen Morton-Robinson. Uh, she was speaking with Professor Fiona Nicole on Broadly Speaking an online event held by the Wheeler Centre earlier this year. Um, And this is the first in a series of really excellent conversations on feminism and gender. Uh, So I'd encourage listeners to check out the other conversations on the Wheeler Centre website.
Listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR, and that was uh, Power by Les, Am- Les Amazons d'Afrique. Uh, it's just past 8 o'clock, and we have Cam Smith on the phone from Yenar Passaran calling in to tell us about the right wing reaction to Trump losing the election. Good morning, Cam. Thanks so much for getting up early to speak to us today. Morning, Patty. No problems at all. Cam, there was a sense of foreboding leading up to the US election that there might be a violent reaction no matter who won. How has Trump supporters responded to the election results so far? Uh, it's been interesting. I think that some of what people feared uh, didn't come to pass and some of it did. We saw when they were counting the votes and uh, yeah, there's still a lot of right-wing disinformation about what's happening with that, we saw there was one case of uh, a QAnon person being, you know, pulled up quite close to a voting centre with the allegedly firearms and possibly some sort of intent. Uh, and then just this weekend, we've seen uh, the Million MAGA march uh, in Washington, D.C. They fell a bit short of a million, but <laughs> there were still uh, Proud Boys and other neo-fascists in the streets sort of attacking people and I think a number of people were stabbed. So they've, uh, you know, the order to stand by seems to have been rescinded. Oh, no. And I wanted to get into some of these groups with you because I, I see them in the reportage. So maybe we'll start with the Proud Boys. Who are they and what are they about? They're, I, they're a bit of a weird one. They're a Western male chauvinist group. They Basically, they think the West is best. Often that means that uh, whites are best, uh, but they do have non-white members. But it's, it is sort of a tokenistic thing. And we saw just in the past week or so, one member of the group or someone associated with the group saying, look, we need to get away from this idea of having you know, blacks and Asians and uh, gay people in the group and get back to what's really important, which is fighting Jews. <laughs> so there's a, there's a bit of a tension there. Uh, but, yeah, they, um, they're they an inherently violent group. One of the 
ways to proceed through the ranks of the organisation is to get into a fight with the leftists. And that's basically what they're about, is fighting the left physically. And they often uh, turn up to left rallies to antagonise sort of left groups. Is that correct? Yeah, that's pretty much the MO. And that's, yeah, both the... I mean, that's the, the core of what they're about. So that's what they do. And this other group that you mentioned, um, the, the QAnon people, what's what's their deal? Oh, we've <laughs> got a couple of hours. Uh, basically, it's a conspiracy theory that the Democrats and uh, Hollywood elites in the deep state are harvesting the blood of children to uh, prolong their lives or for whatever reason. And uh, it sounds ridiculous, but it's gotten some... Uh, pretty powerful support. Uh, Donald Trump notably refused to denounce it during the election campaign, which didn't help, but I think they had something like 80 candidates running in this last election cycle who had at least uh, signalled some support for the theory. At at the end of the day, it sort of comes back to this idea that Trump is not a loser that he's behind the scenes working on all this stuff. So while it looks like he didn't achieve anything that he said he was going to do, he has achieved all of this secret secret agent stuff that you don't know about. Uh, one thing I've learned from listening to your show is that the right wing often presents itself in these really bizarre uh, ways, at least superficially. And I wonder if that's part of the reason Trump became president in the first place, because he was dismissed early on, you know, as almost as this character out of a satire. Is that something that makes the right wing even more dangerous, um, that we often underestimate them? Yeah, I think that that is a thing, that these things can present as ridiculous, and so it's easy to say, all right, that's not going to be a thing. I remember watching before the 2016 election and, like, in the weeks leading up to it, there was this whole Pizzagate thing where these people, this is sort of the predecessor of the QAnon conspiracy where these people thought that the Democrats were running a pedophile ring out of the basement of a pizza pizza restaurant. And I was watching all of these mega people, like, going over hacked pizza restaurants, like, point-of-service systems and trying to work out, like, what was going on with them. And I thought, these people can never win an election if this was proved wrong a few days later. Uh, Yeah, it's easy to say, this is, like, stupid, this is insane... And they'll—it doesn't matter if they believe it. Like they—they'll go out and act on it. Yeah, that's one one thing I always wonder when you when you hear about these things is do they actually believe it or is it some kind of uh, big joke or I I don't know because uh, I remember the the uh, person who uh, who perpetrated the uh, massacres in New Zealand a couple of years ago his. Uh, well, they called it a manifesto, was filled with the, like, sort of internet terms, internet in-jokes and stuff like that. And uh, it's it's a really weird thing for someone who did something so horrible to almost be uh, joking about it at the same time. Yeah, I think that the thing is that most of them do believe it. Like, those, he was part of that sort of specific subculture where he was signalling to, you know, his friends with those jokes. I think that, yeah, that's the thing. They do believe this stuff. And so that's why you have to take it seriously. 
And I've got one last question for you, Cam, and it's probably pretty tough to speculate on, but what do you reckon the next few months look like in the US, and what will change in the country under Biden's presidency? Well, we're seeing right now that they're really signalling, the Republican Party are really signalling, or at least the Trump side of it, they're signalling where they're going to go from here, which is that they're going to continue to question the legitimacy of a Biden presidency. And I think that's going to lead into a victimhood narrative that you'll see carry through to the 2024 election and probably beyond this idea that the election was stolen from them. And so that they need to get out the vote on that basis. And I think that uh, the fact that the Democrats haven't managed to take the Senate, or we'll see what happens in Georgia with the runoff later in January, but uh, the fact that the Republicans are basically going to have free reign to gerrymander uh, in combination with this idea that they lost the election or that it was stolen from them, I think it's not going to go very well for a Biden presidency. It is, yeah. It, looking looking over at the US, just you know, in, in the news coverage, it is like a really scary time with all of the division in the country and the and the conflict. Um, but yeah, I really uh, I wish the people the best, and I hope that they can sort of come to come together and um, make some substantial change. Thanks so much for coming on the show this morning, Cam, and waking up early for us. Uh, yeah, and our Passaran is on every Thursday at four thirty p.m. Is that right? Every second Thursday. Correct. Uh, every Thursday. Oh, every Thursday. Thank you, thank you very much, Cam. Have, have a good one. All right, you too. And uh, now we'll listen to Bluebird by TJ Patrick. If the sun don't come out in the sky If the bluebird stops singing My, oh, my I'm not lying You and me, honey, in a home we got all we ever need Brightest diamonds lose their shine And the stars all burn out I don't mind I'm not crying My eyes and my ears and my smile ain't got nothing but you Got the whole wide world inside this place You and I got a love to last the
And now we're going to listen to a discussion from 3CRs Out of the Blue. In this episode, James Whitnell chats to Zena Comston, a Barkanji woman and research fellow at the University of Melbourne, to find out all about eels that still make their way through the drains of the university, following old water courses buried under the concrete. Zena tells us about her research on Indigenous knowledge and the importance of learning about our pre-invasion environment. Earlier this year, I was being shown around the University of Melbourne, where I work, and I heard an amazing story about eels living in drains under the university, and I had to find out more. So I reached out to Zena Cumston, a Barkindji woman and research fellow at the Clean Air Urban Landscapes Hub at the university. She does a lot of work on Indigenous knowledge and was involved in a project called the Living Pavilion, which explored the flora and fauna of the land where the university sits before invasion. Zena confirmed that eels still find their way beneath the university and told me about their extraordinary migrations from Melbourne's rivers to the Coral Sea and all the way back again. Um, I guess a story that um, some people think is true and other people think perhaps is an urban myth. Um, I'm in the camp of knowing that it's true. So um, I think a lot of people don't realise that most of Melbourne was um, a series of waterways and wetlands before um, invasion. And a lot of the waterways that existed here have now been covered over. And one of those actually ran right through the University of Melbourne Parkville campus. And it was known as, um, it had a few different names, but mostly known as the Bouvery Creek. Um, and most of the waterways that have been covered over still exist in some form underground. So at Melbourne University, from what I can understand, um, a lot of that water um, that went through has kind of been um, now, I guess, goes through underground drains um, because the water doesn't just go away. Um, it's been there for many, many, many thousands of years. The topography of the landscape means that water you know, continues to kind of land in those areas um, because of that topography. Um, so underneath Melbourne Uni, that creek um, still flows in some form, even though it's covered over in concrete. And one thing that I see is, as absolute proof of that waterway still existing is that just on the um, western side of the 1888 building at the Parkville campus, there's a lily-pilly tree, um, which just happens to be my favourite tree um, on all of Parkville campus, and I'm a big tree lover. Mm. Um, this lily-pilly tree is massive. It's grown to about, I would say, six to eight times the normal size of a lily-pilly tree. And when I was doing my research for the Living Pavilion project, I was looking at the Parkville campus in terms of um, past, present and future and thinking about the landscapes um, before invasion and I was also learning about all of the plants that the Kulin Nations people had to utilise across Victoria and thinking about the plants that would have been on the Parkville campus. And when I did my research on the lilypilly tree and realised how massive this tree was compared to normal lilypilly trees, I realised it was because the watercourses underneath it. I did some more research and found that when lilypilly trees happen to be near waterways, they become gargantuan as this tree is. So we know that the Bouvery Street was actually a flowing creek um, and that runs out from Gate 8 at Parkville Campus all the way sort of down um, almost, yeah, I think to around the markets. Um, so the watercourse is still there. So 
a lot of people who work in the grounds um, realm of the University of Melbourne who I've spoken to have said that they um, know of people speaking about seeing eels in the drains when there's um, huge sort of water um, influxes of water like through big rains etc and eels are amazing at using um, waterways as highways mm. and eels are a huge part of the biodiversity of Victoria and we also know that eels don't actually um, stop even when there's something in their way. Mm. So even if you put concrete over the top of them, their, um, their will to do what they need to do in terms of their continuation is incredible. And when we think about what eels themselves do to get back home to reproduce, it makes sense that they're still moving in those underground um, waterways across Melbourne now. It's, so, it's really remarkable and quite beautiful, really, to think that, you know, these creatures are still, you know, moving through Melbourne despite the city being built over the top of them. Can you just tell us a bit more about that life cycle and where they go to breed? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, I'm definitely not an expert in this area and the research that I've done around eels has mainly been from a cultural perspective because I'm a Barkindji woman and my work at the university predominantly sits within the realm of looking at um, Aboriginal perspectives of biodiversity in urban areas. Um, that's kind of the lens that I've applied to my learnings. So there are many people who know a lot more about eels, but from my understanding, um, eels, when, when they reach maturity and are ready to to reproduce, which I think is between 14 and 20 years old, but I could be completely wrong. Um, I'm just going from my memory here from things that I've been reading to write the narratives that I write about biodiversity. Um, they travel a really long way. So they go, um, I think it's between 4,000 and 5,000 kilometres from different parts of Victoria, right up the east coast of Australia. Um, and they... Don't, their, their stomachs apparently kind of um, almost, they contract in a way that they almost aren't there anymore. They don't eat at all. So by the time they get this 4,000, 5,000 kilometres away, they are pretty much just um, reproductive organs and, you know, skin and bone. Um, and they um, have their babies. They have thousands and thousands and thousands of them. Um, I think each year yeah, produces like thousands. And then, of course, many of them don't survive. But they travel back the, the, um, the glass eels, I think they're called, which is, um, you know, when they're still really tiny. They travel back along um, the waterways, um, down along on the, in the current, um, back to where they came from, which is incredible to think mm. that a lot of these eels came from creeks in different parts of um, Victoria and actually know how to make their way back to the place that their parents have come from. Truly extraordinary. So could you tell us a bit more about what eels mean to Indigenous culture? You mentioned you're a Bakunji woman, um, but I was also thinking of the budgebim eel traps found out um, in Western Victoria and things like that. Yeah, so... On my country, so I'm Barkindji, so I'm from Western New South Wales, and on my country we don't have um, eels and we don't have eel practice. But since living in Melbourne, I've become quite fascinated with it because I know the Wadjuri people here in Melbourne. It was a big part of their cultural lives and um, their subsistence. And as you say, um, I think you know. For Gunditjmara people, eels are central to so much of their cultural 
world um, and their ability to survive and to thrive for such a long period of time. But if we just sort of look at the basics of eels, um, they're very high in lipids and, and good fats um, and protein and they're actually not too difficult to catch compared to, um, I guess, lots of other animals. So it kind of makes sense that they've been a really important part of the diet who've, of, for people who've lived along waterways. So there's many different Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander groups across Australia for whom eels would be important. Um, I guess my research for the Living Pavilion allowed me to understand a bit more about Wadjuri people and and um, how they sort of practiced um, their culture with eels. So I know that um, there's a whole season in the Wurundjeri seasons that um, is called Eok season, which is their word for eel. Um, and at that time, um, obviously, it was when the eels were moving and when they were um, at their best for eating, so very um, fat. And I learnt that when the silver wattle, which is a beautiful yellow flower, which if you walk along any of the waterways in Melbourne, you'll see this beautiful um, silver wattle. Um, I think it started blooming now and it starts to drop um, into the Birrarung in what the Wurundjeri people call eel season, mm -hmm. eel season, and there's a grub in that flower from what I've been able to understand um, that the eels eat and it makes them fat, which wow. is a good time to catch them. Yeah, so like Gundich Mara people, from what I understand, Wurundjeri people also um, use nets, but they also use spears to catch eels. And, of course, we know... And, you know, it's a fascinating thing to learn about if you really want to start understanding the complexity of Aboriginal culture, to learn about the whole um, Butch Bim aquaculture system is, like, mind-blowing. I was really lucky when I was at uni. Um, I was able to go with um, Professor Ian McNiven out onto Butch Bim country and do an excavation, and we learnt a lot from Goodrich Mara people um, about their culture associated with eels and the aquaculture there, which we know is... Those systems, the aquaculture system, is the oldest in the world. It is more than 6,500 years old and it has been continuously used. Goodrich Mara mob, no matter what interventions have happened on their country and invasion and all of the terrible things that happened, they never stopped using um, that, those aquaculture systems. So it's, it's the longest in continuous use. And I think if people do want to learn about um, eels, I mean, obviously... I'm telling you about Wurundjeri and Gunditjmara people's um, use of eels, but really as a Barkindji woman, I know nothing. Mm. Um, but there's lots of opportunities for people to learn from traditional owners, and I think that's the very best way. And it's wonderful that Butchbim is now, you know, World Heritage listed, and, and that's got a listing just on its cultural values, and so much of those cultural values revolve around their um, interaction with eels. Mm. So... Um, yeah, if anyone is wanting to learn more, they have an amazing cultural centre out there and all sorts of tours, and I can't recommend it highly enough because I feel so privileged that I was I was able to learn um, from Gunditch Maramob when I was at uni, when I did the archaeology um, subject. And as far as in Melbourne, um, the Bolombolan um, Billabong, and it was kind of a chain of um, Billabongs, was a really important place for Wadjuri people um, in terms of their ealing. So um, there was a great article in The Guardian recently with Uncle Dave Wondon um, and Michael Sean Fletcher, who's a Wiradjuri um, academic at the University of Melbourne, and they were doing work looking at 
um, cultural practices around the Bolombolan swamp and uncovering some of those histories. But we know that people used to go there um, during EOP season and have massive feeds and huge get-togethers with thousands of people. And there was so much readily available food, i.e. eels, mm. that people stayed for weeks and weeks of cultural business. Mm. So you've been working on this thing called the Living Pavilion at the university, telling stories about some of the environment and wildlife and things that were present before invasion. Um, Where would you like to see this work go? Yeah, so that was actually a project that was, um, it sort of came to fruition in May of 2019 and it was just for about two and a half weeks. And um, we... Um, a whole group of researchers, including myself, transformed just a small part of the Parkville campus. So we told a lot of stories through signage um, and also through the installation of 40,000 Kulin Nation plants, that is plants that are important to, to Aboriginal peoples of the wider sort of Victorian area. Um, and I guess it, it allowed a portal for people to understand the breadth and depth of our knowledges um, and not just plant use in terms of little things that we sometimes hear about in terms of nutrition and, and um, medicines, but also people understanding the really complex technologies that we've been able to um, innovate and, and make um, using plants. So I guess where I'd really like to see this work going is that more often in urban landscapes, I really want people to have the opportunity to understand about the the deep histories of place that exist everywhere that have been covered over by things like concrete. And those deep histories are still there. Um, We as Aboriginal people know so many of our stories. There's a really damaging narrative, um, I think, that I hear a lot, um, that in southeastern Australia a lot of our culture is lost. And I've even been working with young Aboriginal people doing workshops in schools. And a lot of the students have really shocked me because um, there's been comments like, why did Aboriginal people die out? We didn't die out. Um, there's no place in Australia, whether urban or, or um, out you know, in the country, that is not spoken for. Every place in Australia is an Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander place. And I think that the greater kind of population seems to want to know more about these stories and about the ways in which we've interacted with landscapes. And that's especially so because we are experiencing such um, a tumultuous time in terms of the pressures of what's happening with climate change um, and environmental things that are happening. I think more and more people are understanding that there's a lot of knowledge that um, perhaps in some areas is sleeping, but hasn't been resourced in a way that allows it to be reinvigorated. It's not that our culture's dead. It certainly is not. Um, it's more that in some areas we need to apply resources to allow um, Aboriginal people to um, reinvigorate cultural practice. And you can really see that with things like the Fire Sticks Alliance, mm-hmm. who are doing a lot of work to get people to understand cultural burning and um, land management from that lens. So I'd just like to see um, more opportunities for everyone to learn um, more about the histories of place and to be able to interact with and talk with us as Aboriginal people and see that we are very much in the now. We are still caring for country and there's lots of our narratives which are incredibly important to be applied to the ways that we are managing landscapes today. That was Zena Cumston, a Barkindji woman and research fellow at the University of Melbourne with that amazing story. 
You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM. And, yeah, that was James Whitmail talking to Zena Comston. And that was part of Out of the Blue, a 3CR show that's on every Sunday from 11.30 AM to midday. Um, so Out of the Blue is about marine and coastal environments. Um, there's news and interviews with marine scientists, campaigners and conservation workers every Sunday. Thanks so much for bringing that to the show, Ella. I really enjoyed that interview. I want to go back and listen to it again. Yeah, fascinating. Who knew? Eels are right beneath us all the time. <laughs> yeah, but also interesting that she could even be uh, suggesting that some people think Indigenous culture is dead. I mean, I think I thought we'd all move past that. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, yeah. the next step. Yeah, let's <laughs> apply those resources that she was referring to to elevate the uh, stories and knowledge. And we're almost at the end of the show, so I just wanted to uh, say uh, thank you so much to all of our guests. And I wanted to bring one part, uh, one more piece of breaking news uh, to all our listeners just before we go. There's now 17 coronavirus cases linked to a cluster in Adelaide's northern suburbs. Um, that's that's uh, 13 more than there were yesterday. Um, let's really hope that uh, that they get that under control because we know how how bad it can get how quickly yeah absolutely do we know much about where it's originated from or? i understand um it might have come from one of the medi hotels where a coronavirus uh, uh patient was was staying and then and then it's come from a staff member into the community and i guess when you're like SA, uh, S- south australia's had such a long period of sort of covid normal that it's probably easier to spread yeah, probably not quite as long age as we are here in Melbourne. <laughs> we also heard that there was uh, one in a prison. Yeah, I did hear that, and, that's, yeah, and that, really that cluster scary. continues. But hopefully the public health response will get that un- under control. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, that was Monday Breakfast. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day, and stay tuned for Women on the Line. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.